Officers Association of Michigan podcast radio show recorded live in our studios in Redford, Michigan. Home is a full-service labor organization formed to provide every labor-related service from negotiations, grievance processing, legal and legislative representation to Act 312 arbitrations. You know, discussing how this impact of the of the pandemic has been on the general public and, and maybe multiplied somewhat uh, on how it impacts the law enforcement officers. And one of the things that uh, is becoming common knowledge out there is how hard it is to hire police officers, how hard it is to hire good police officers. And I guess they all have good intentions, but, you know, when you have fewer candidates, you find yourself at the bottom of the list quicker. And uh, I'll give an example, one really nice department that I deal with uh, lately, they had 64 applications get picked up for job applications for police officer. And only three of those people will actually get interviewed. Most of them never showed up or most of them didn't finish the application. And a few of them couldn't pass a simple background check. Uh, so three out of 64, and believe me, 64 applications was like a record. I have places that if they get four or five applications picked up, that it's good. So you know, I have to ask myself, where does some of that come from? And we talked earlier about the loss of status. You know, it used to be a, a police officer in your family. Maybe it was your grandpa, an uncle, a brother, a neighbor that impacted you, caused you to think, boy, that's a job. I want to be just like him or her someday. And now all of a sudden, those people that have that job or had that job that you used to rely on as that role model or that inspiration, now they say, hey, whatever you do, don't go there. Don't do that. It's a bad idea. We never would have heard that 10, 15 years ago because it had this, the loss of benefits had a lot. In the last 10, 15 years, there's no pensions, there's no retirement health care. So unless you want a police officer to work till he's Medicare eligible at 65, uh, you're not going to be able to get too many people. They're going to have to go get a job when they get off because there won't be any health care to bridge them from age, say, 50 or 55 to 65. The uh, the pensions, you know, became defined contribution pensions. And, uh, you know, that's pretty typical in the private sector, and it, it can be a good pension. But we don't want police officers that work three or four years out of place. We want them to come in and by our goal is that they come here and they retire from here, that – we give them a reason to stay, and then we give them a reason to feel comfortable after they, they have become eligible to retire. Well, that's, that's gone now, too. So this loss of status, this loss of benefits. We talked earlier about uh, the media attention and you know watching police officers get evacuated from a roof of a police station in Portland by a helicopter because of a bunch of people with torches in their hands down on the ground. Uh, who, who'd want to... Could you go find some 13, 14-year-old kid that's really a pretty sharp young dude and say, you want to be a police officer? He's watching this on TV, and he's thinking, Jesus, all they do is beat people up, and they, you know, they don't get a job, and you know, these kind of things happen. So it's really made hiring police officers difficult. And then 
for the guys that are on the job that maybe feel captured on the job because they've been here long enough that it's they're too old to move on or they're uh, uh, too young to know better. The uh, we have this reduced manpower, and it's it's not only because of the difficulty in hiring. It's not really even because of the ability of the of the local governments to have the money to hire people. It's because the reduced manpower is because of people being quarantined, people being sent home, people being sick uh, because of what's occurred in this pandemic. I mean, we, I guess we have to err on the side of caution, but we send a lot of people home that that feel okay. You know, I understand to some extent why that occurs. But that then means that when they go home, they have to quarantine themselves from their own family. And I guess I'd like to hear you know, some of your thoughts on, you know, how this might impact an officer that has to maybe homeschool. These these aren't all uh, stay-at-home teachers. These are people that were working in, you know, in injection mold shops or at, at the police department and suddenly have to be the math teacher and uh, and spend an extra six or seven hours with their kids. It might be, you know, a long day for some of them. So, then we want them to come back to work. You know, maybe maybe that's half of their time off is homeschooling because they don't get the day off. They don't work from home. How do you think that might impact the law enforcement officer in well, general? You know, you raised a lot of issues, and I'd like to break them out. The first one is, you know, reduced manpower, how tough it is to recruit. Let's take a look at the officer impact and officer implications of that statement. So the department doesn't have enough bodies to put on the street. So what do they do? They start demanding forced overtime. And forced overtime is going to have a a ripple effect on the officer and his or her family. One, when they come home, they're going to be depleted. So they're going to need to rest. They may have a sense of exhaustion. And the fatigue factor when they're resting is going to limit some of the expectations of family participation they had and their significant others. And the kids are going to have, hey, dad, why don't we do something? I'm too tired. Leave me alone. Or the significant other says, well, you know, I need you to do this. I need you to go shopping. And over time, that fatigue says, you know what? I just got to get myself together. And then sometimes the um, forced overtime causes them to miss important family events. Kid may be doing something with a team, something with a play. And then there's the anger, perhaps, from the significant other. You know, I mean, I understand the paycheck's going up, but the participation is going down, and this isn't what I want in the marriage. And when you're not sure when this is going to stop— Is this a time-limited problem? Or if they don't get sufficient manpower through enhanced and successful recruiting, what is going to be the long-term issue of physical wear and tear and emotional wear and tear that the officer and their families are going to have to deal with? And again, this lowers the threshold of vigilance and preparedness they may have when they go back on the street and... Then when they have encounters and the flashpoint for the citizen because of all the impact of COVID issues we talked to has raised their reactivity, it's also possible it does the same thing for the 
police officer because they have the same issues of fatigue, concern about wages, uncertainty about the job, and they bring that to the street too when the encounters occur. You know, that's really helpful. I mean, uh, I'm glad to hear all those things. It means a lot to me because these are the people that I deal with out there, and it's it's not uncommon for an employer to say to me, hey, tell you, how, how do you defend this kind of behavior? How do you, how do you, how can you make excuses for this person? And, and it's only recently and even more so today after our discussion here that I'm starting to realize, well, here's why. I mean, have we asked? Have we looked into this? It's not the same guy, you know, I had one year release at 21 years on a job, unblemished record that all of a sudden you don't even recognize what he just did. And you think, well, how does that happen? Well, it's not because he was always a bad person and this, you know, suddenly surfaced. It's because he's confronted with things that, you know, all these things that you describe, whether it's lack of sleep, you know, uh, you know, the compassion from the spouse or the, the you know, the kids uh, playing around, and you know, and the other thing, the mandated overtime you mentioned, and I have heard these stories where somebody misses the, the soccer game, somebody misses the swim meet, maybe it's somebody's wedding. Uh, I, I'll tell you how. I'll give you a good example of a mandated overtime story where. A young lady, uh, some good time on a job, good uh, good employee, uh, had worked uh, twelve out of sixteen days, twelve hours a day. Uh, three of those being mandated overtime. Mandated meaning that you must appear. It's, they don't call you at home and say come in. They tell you a few days in advance you're going to stay. Some of those become sixteen-hour days, and in this particular case, she had made. An error, no one harmed, uh, kept, you know, bookkeeping error, something that should have been done, normally was done, but she missed it. And uh, they wanted to give her two days off. And I went in and I talked to the employer about it. And I says, hey, you know, cut her a little slack. She's been a good employee. She made a mistake, normal thing. And they were willing to give her the time back. And when I went and mentioned it to her, she said, please don't get me the time back. I literally. <laughs> Would rather be home without pay for two days. I've been here for uh, 12 out of the last 16 days, some of those 16-hour days. And she said, uh, I'd rather stay home. And I've never heard somebody say to me in the past, thanks for, uh, thanks for screwing up my weekend, I've had, and now I have to get my days back. And uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing out there, these people that are missing the events. I think that's something that we need to see we need to look into more uh, that it's not just the fatigue. Fatigue's a big part of it, and maybe that's why we become less patient. But it is missing something that you planned a long time to do, you know, being at somebody's wedding or a graduation or something like that. You know, I think there's another issue, maybe less so now than a year ago, but this was generating a lot of stresses in offices that I was seeing. And there were issues in terms of tactical training. When there were the um, social unrest meetings, shall we say, and officers were putting on helmets and standing arm to arm, and people were very angry and coming up upon them, and they weren't trained. You know, they didn't. They weren't all from Fort Bragg, where you learned how to deal with civil insurrection, and. In their heads, they say, we got to stand tough. we got to keep our, our line. 
in their heads are saying, what the heck am I going to do if they attack me, if they start taking us down? We don't want to shoot them. On the other hand, we're not really trained in how to constrain them, and it generated a lot of anxieties of, if this happens, what do I do? What do I do? And I think at that time the level of training in terms of crowd control uh, was not um, at a level that inspired officers that they knew how to manage these these kinds of uh, situations. The other thing is when you had the citizens coming up to offices and everybody was concerned about COVID and people said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to spit on you. You know, and a lot of citizens did that. And then if the officer gets really angry because they're reacting, what if the breathing, the spitting gets me full of COVID? How can this person have a license to, in a sense, threaten me? You know, you want to curse me, you want to do that, I understand. But if this behavior may really get me sick or my family sick, they may be having a flashpoint to react with more intensity than they might have done in the past. So I think there's a training issue of how do we empower our police to respond to these new threats given this new risk. That's that's going to be a tough one. Uh, and, and you think about the spitting and the fear that they might have, and then you look at 2021 where you had 358 line-of-duty deaths that were COVID-related, as they said. So it's not uh, it's not a, a fear it's not a fear that you should ignore. You know, uh, when I was on the job, you know, it was AIDS was the big thing, and we got those same types of deals where people would spit on you that weren't infected. But in those days, not unlike this, you know, it would take days, maybe weeks, maybe months before we knew we were actually okay. You know, we didn't have any symptoms, but it wasn't something that you certainly developed, uh, you know, a cold or a fever or a week later. It was it could be months, and you might you might pass that on to other people as well. And so guys used to use that as a threat to us, and probably 90% of the time they hadn't ever gotten AIDS themselves. But how do we know? And then you go home. Again, you've got, you know, a spouse and children. And, uh, and that made us react differently then, but it, it went away. This one here, uh, I mean, it didn't ever, it never went away completely, but we knew that it was a fluid exchange type of a thing. So it wasn't like we could be sitting three feet apart and get it. Uh, and so it was, it was a different type of an exposure. Whereas this one now, you can be really driving along, driving someone to a bus stop or driving them home after their car breaks down and really not being in any trouble at all and be exposed and not even know it until it's too late. So we have, I think that that, uh, that concern for the exposure, uh, and I, again, I had to go back to March 16th of 20, but we all thought that it was going to be over in two weeks. You know, it was going to be no big deal. And here we are, February of 22. And, uh, you know, we're still talking about it and still concerned about it. And in spite of double vaccines and boosters, it's uh, all those things that we thought would put this in, into the history book. Uh, just haven't been successful. So I appreciate that uh, that input. And I think maybe we can, next time we talk, we can talk a little bit about how officers can learn to de-escalate a little bit and uh, how the old-style de-escalation might not be as, as uh, good as it used to be. Thanks. 
I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the POAM Podcast Radio Show. I want to remind you that each and every month you can find every single podcast online on Apple iTunes. Just search for POAM. They're also available for download or for live listen on our website. Visit us at POAM.net. Get on our newsletter and send us all of your comments and suggestions for future shows. 